You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to Radio Primavera Sound. Uh, today we are joined by the enigmatic figure who is the secret DJ, a DJ journalist and author who is now onto his third book, Tales from the Booth. Uh, in which he reaches out to dozens of DJs from around the world, all anonymous, for their own true stories uh, of DJ life. I read it recently, um, and it is an incredibly eye-opening book. Um, there's all kinds of things. There's some of the usual uh, hedonism that you might expect, you know, tales of, of going to places and taking lots of cocaine and that kind of thing. But there's also some really eye-opening tales, like um, the very first story in the book, for example, is a DJ... Uh, who is talking about why, basically, why he likes, why he got into DJing so much. It's, I mean, he loves music, but also it gives him this lifestyle. He's lazy, and, and he kind of says it. There's another uh, there's another person that talks about being, uh, taking heroin for years, and again, not glamorizing it in the slightest, um, sort of saying that's the way things are and how it affected their life. And there is also a tale of a DJ and vocalist who has a very bad stutter, and how again sort of being in the dance music world they've got a sort of reputation of being quite um aloof because they often don't want to go and, and speak to someone um it's it's really fascinating it's out on velocity press uh, and i really recommend uh you go and read it it's his it's his third book um i didn't get into the whole speculation about who the secret dj is um because there's lots and lots of that online if you want to go and look at it and also i don't think it's all that important. I mean, obviously, you know, we try to un unveil every everything. There was a big rash of these, like the secret DJ, the secret footballer, secret barrister, or maybe lawyer, I believe. Um, and I, you know, I had no kind of interest in that. But there, there are sort of certain important things uh, about who the secret DJ is, certain characteristics. He is in his 50s, I believe. Uh, he's had loads and loads of experience as a DJ. Uh, he came of age before Acid House uh, and made some pop records in the 90s. Um, currently, he lives in Ibiza and recently had a very, very, very nasty uh, batch of, of COVID. Um, but he is he's better now. Personally, I think he's a fascinating person. Um, our interview touched on many, many things um, from the big dance music bust of 1999 to the serious problems in the club world. Um, and it's funny, too. We also talk, for example, about why so many GJs sent in uh, stories for his book about why they shit themselves. Uh, honestly, uh, they did. And luckily, I think those stories didn't make it. And the ones that did are a lot more interesting. So as I say, uh, I recommend you buy his book. Um, and I hope you enjoy this interview. We started off talking about the motivation behind uh, his new book, Tales from the Booth. You, you no. say people. You say people won't uh, speak to you. Your new book uh, is some do. Some do. It's very much based. I mean, you got you got uh, 40, uh, 40 or so stories. Um, yeah, but these these are sort of personal stories from people. They're not actually exposing any wrongdoing or naming any names. That's more in the second book. This one is more like I'm sort of calling the bluff on a lot of people. A lot of friends get in touch. So this is the thing you always find. It's like people will privately say to you, I love what you're doing. And or even a great example is social media. People send you a private message saying, yeah, go get them, secret DJ. You're the best. But they won't say anything publicly. Yeah. So they well, won't commit at all. But a lot of the stories, um, I mean, they might not be naming names, but they're, they're, there's a real there's do. A range, you know, from um, the, the sort of 
hedonistic to you know very serious kind of criticism of of the culture and dance music world i mean what were you expecting when you asked people for their for their story no this is what i was saying uh, about the um people getting getting in touch with me privately and they were like oh i wish i was anonymous i could tell my stories or oh i've got a story and it's really really funny and i was just calling the bluff i was like fine i'll put it in the next book then mm. simple it's like, oh, oh, you really want to tell this story? Fine, tell me the story and I'll publish it. And what I've got to respond to, we had 82, 80, 84 DJs in total and we only managed to get, so, yeah, you know, that's a lot of stories. Yeah, yeah. About 30% of them, and I'm not exaggerating, about a third were about blokes shitting themselves. <laughs> yeah, you say Seriously. this. Right. Seriously, yeah. They were just like, yeah, and then I was in the pool and I shit myself. And he was just like, oh, okay, mate, yeah. And it's one of those things like, obviously you had to be there. And then you find that there's just so many of them and they're almost the same story. And I'm like, okay, well, either this didn't happen or everybody shits themselves all the time. It's just fair enough. There are a lot of drugs involved. But it's amazing this sort of amount of people who are like, would get in touch with me and say, oh, you know, I've got this amazing story for you. And then like, you know, they finish and they got like jazz hands. It's like, da-da, and you're like, it's just the worst story I've ever heard. <laughs> everybody thinks they can write and everybody thinks their story is really interesting to other people. So there is a thing here where I found since the beginning of the secret DJ thing, there's now a lot of DJ books and I was sort of all for it, but you do have to be able to write as well. Yeah. It is a book. <laughs> I mean, so it does help if you can string words together. And so, so I've been doing, I've been a music journalist for a very, very long time and also a little bit of politics. So it's, it, there's a lot of people now going, oh, I can do a book. It's like, it's actually not that easy. And the hardest part, obviously, is getting published. But what you tend to find is you get kind of fame will be added to it. And funnily enough, one of the great, the greatest, the most persistent criticisms I get as a secret DJ is that I'm not allowed to write a book or you're not famous enough to write a book. It's like, what the fuck has fame got to do with writing a book? What has it got to do with it? But this is the thing is people are now so used to like only famous people can have a radio show. Only famous people can write books. They attach the weight of celebrity to anything to help it sell. It's got to a point where almost nobody except famous people can now be successful in terms of sort of, you know, things like this. Almost every children's book is now by a celebrity. Yeah. You know, so that thing of, of, of sort of attaching fame to things is happening now as well with these DJ books. So what you're finding is you're getting a famous person, famous DJ will now put a book out, but it's not a very good book because they didn't write it. It was yeah. ghostwritten, you know. And, and and one of the reasons why I did the Secret Day DJ books in the first place was, A, there's not many books about our scene. The 60s were a third of dance music's at least 30, 30 years old, if not getting on for 40 years old. And the 60s was 10 years there's hundreds and if not thousands of books about the sixties and TV shows and films. And there's almost nothing about our scene. Not almost nothing in comparison, almost like 1% of something like that. So one of the reasons I wanted to do these things in the first place was it's very un underdocumented, but also the stuff that I did read, didn't really read like anybody had been there. It was quite journalistic. It was like, oh, and then fat boy slim played to 1 million people in the, in South America. And it was amazing. And it's like, Okay, you're reporting on what happened, but I've never read any books about who was there, somebody who was actually there, a bit meaning a DJ. You know, do you think, do you think like the the DJs who sent in their stories was it sort of cathartic for them in a way? Do you get the impression it was something like they'd been meaning to to get off their chest? Yeah, it depends on the on the topic. I mean, obviously, some of the 
victims of racism and sexism felt that if it gave that impression that they were getting something off their chest. And, and again, it's mentioned in the book, it's almost a complete dividing line. All the stale, pale and male stories are about what a jolly jape the whole dance music industry is and all the people of uh, minorities, for want of a better word, are stories about struggle and pain. Yeah. And, and the average Mori poll is what? Hundred people max when they when they do a poll that polls that can influence policy around the world. There was there was nearly a hundred DJs that we spoke to, and it's a very good um, poll of what it's like. Because if you are one of those people who doesn't believe in Black Lives Matter, if you're one of those people, a swivel-eyed lunatic who doesn't believe in vaccines and things like that, the evidence is right there. There's there's nearly a hundred DJs there, and almost completely. There's a there's a dividing line of race and sex down the middle and gender, so these these issues are very real and very important if you're involved in them. But if you've got to stick your hand in the sand, then yeah, of course. I've got to say, I, two of the stories I really I really enjoyed um, were the very first one where there's a DJ explaining why he I think it's he became, became a DJ basically because he's quite lazy. Um, yeah. And another one I really liked uh, is about a DJ, and again, I think it's he. It might might not be who who has a stutter, and mm. basically, you know, uses um, likes the kind of DJ world because he or, or, or she can you, you know can be quite removed from people and not have to speak to too many. No, yeah, but, not just a DJ, but also a singer. So, which, yeah. is, which is what interested me. Yeah, we, I wanted to get a disability story in, but. There's not a lot, so that was a very clear one. Do you, do you have any sort of favourite contributions from that? Anyone, anyone you would particularly like to sort? Of I really like the one about Arthur, the guy who lived in the block of flats who, who let the pirate the pirate. Oh radio, yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he was obsessed with locks and cookers. <laughs> I really liked. I liked that because it was oddball. I like the one about being startled by a stag. Oh yes, I, I see. They're, I, they're a little bit offbeat, you know. I, the one with the stag, I I thought, no, come on, it can't have happened. Surely, given given the, uh, the the state of the protagonist in it, I don't know, but it was a good story. It's, yeah, it's um, it, it, I just I think what I wanted my model for the book was the Twilight Zone, uh, but not in tone, but as an anthology. I wanted after doing two, um, if you like, non-fiction novels. I don't know how how you would how you would yeah. describe them the nearest thing you could compare them to is something like Fear and Loathing. Gonzo, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, something like that, where it's like somebody who's actually there telling this story, but telling it in, a, in as colourful a way as you can, you know, so it's interesting. And uh, after those two sort of books, and the second book was a bit more state of the nation, you know, talking about issues in the industry as well as jolly japes and funny stories and idiots at the wheel. Uh, so I wanted this one to be an anthology. So... Uh, having a little bit of everything and also to be surprising so that each story was very unconnected to the next. Because it was a very, very hard to create a narrative in the first two books. Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of how a book works and ideally you want people to read it and to turn the pages. Yeah. And nearly everybody, I've, uh, thankfully, nearly everybody I've given a book to has read it if, as soon as they start. It's very hard to get people to, especially a generation of people, maybe two generations who just don't read. They don't read books. Yeah. Right? So it was quite hard to get a lot of people just to read a book. But once they started, they all finished, which is very gratifying. But you have to force a narrative on a lot of things. For instance, in the first book, a lot of the events were decades apart. 
I mean, if, if I wrote them down uh, in chronological order as they happened with all the cast of characters involved, it would be like the fucking Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know? And nobody wants to read the dance music Lord of the Rings. For God's sake, Dildo Buggins and his and his, 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 his adventures. It would just be it would just be unbearable. So you have to pare it down. You have to swap things around. Something that happened that year happens before this event and squash those two people into one character and you know and you have to you have to take a lot of license with it to make it read for it to have a beginning middle and an end and over over nearly well 40 years now being in the industry there's a lot of stuff has happened so i have you have to condense it you have to make it into a narrative so after two, two, having done that with two books, it was extremely difficult. I was literally running out of, I was running out of funny stories and I was running out of ways to make it readable because I don't want it to be a ramble. And most of all, most of all, one of those horrible hagiographies like me, me, me. And then I did this and, and I made this amount of money and then I was on top of the pops and it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. And I don't care about your childhood. I don't care about your black and white play jumpers for goalposts thing you know every time I read a biography I always skip the first two chapters because I, I just don't yeah. care about someone's childhood so it's that thing where I didn't want to make it me 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 the secret DJ isn't about me there's actually three of us in the, in yeah. the team that get that are behind it and uh, and it's never been about me and my life it is stories from my life but I, I like to think that they're ones that people are either interested in or have relevance or that you can learn from so I, I won't put in something that I've say, for instance, I'm immensely proud of because yeah. it's just like saying how great I am. And, and none of not anybody who reads any of the books will certainly see that I'm not at any point trying to say I'm great. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's a, both the first two books were cautionary tales. They were like, don't do what I did. Well, this, don't is, do it. this is something that interests me. I was because having read the book, I was wondering like if if somebody came up to you, some you know oh. person of eighteen, and said, "Look, mm. I'd really like to be a DJ." Don't do it. <laughs> but really? Is there, is yeah. it, do you really think that? Well, no. I, I get I get quite. A lot. I mean, I've done a few interviews, and I get quite a lot of sticks sometimes. For people who've read, certainly people outside the industry, they're like, "It looks like you don't even like DJing," you know. And it's like, of course I do. I wouldn't have done it for forty years if I didn't yeah. like it. I wouldn't have done it for five minutes if I didn't like it. But it's it's um. It's 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 a it's a sausage machine. It kills people. People die. Yeah, you know it chewed up what's his name, Tim Bergling Avicii chewed yeah. him up like mints and spat him out. And he's just one, you know. And what we don't hear about are all the low level ones and the one hit wonders and the people who are in the machine for a year, because it, the problem with dance music is it's already hedonistic. It's already full of drugs before you even get a record contract. You're already fucked <laughs> and nobody ever 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 improved after being given unlimited amounts of money attention and adulation well the, this, again one of the very interesting stories in the book was about the heroin user who which which yeah i liked that one yeah i i, I really liked it because i wasn't expecting it at all it it wasn't it was drugs but it wasn't sort of hedonism if you see what mm. i mean there, mm. it, there was nothing fun about it yeah, but, I took amphetamines for a very, very long time in a very, very workmanlike way. And it really fucked me up as well. But it's it's one of those, I, I, I hate to sound a granddad, but I, I'm finding now in my old age that the, the softest drugs are the most problematic. I have more problems in my life from weed and from whiz than I ever did from 
acid or heroin or crack you know what i mean yeah. you try everything once or twice but these sort of soft habitual ones that you do very slowly over a very long period they're, they're extremely hazardous i want to tell us briefly about uh, you mentioned in the book uh, you talk about new year's eve 1999 um as a big turning point in dance music um yeah the economics uh, economics of it yeah yeah i kind of remember that well, like tell us about what happened there with the sort of the the bubble and the and how it got burst well, personally, I got paid the most ever uh, on that uh, on that date, and it was a bit of a shock. And I was still young and naive enough to actually be embarrassed by it. So I was like, I said to um, my manager at the time, uh, "I want to put it was. Uh, I'll, I'll be straight with you. It was ten thousand pounds, which is a lot of money then. Yeah, you know, it was a lot of money in nineteen ninety nine. It was ten times more than I'd ever seen in my life. You know? Yeah." And um, I was embarrassed, but it was this thing where, you know, DJs were actually in, in short supply then. Certainly DJs that could sell tickets and could fill rooms, you know. So I was told, oh, we, we, we got, and, and all this was done a year before. There was a big panic about booking DJs for, for 1999. You know, it was a big, big, big date, possibly the biggest date, because New Year's Eve is always a big, probably the biggest date of the year for DJs, but this was, the millennium, you know, so it yeah. was New Year's Eve times 10, quite literally in terms of what they were offering. And I was a sort of a pretty mid-range DJ, but I was a resident in a super club. And so that super club had to make an offer to my manager and agent to keep me there. Otherwise I would have got more money somewhere else, basically. And what happened was on the millennium was places like Fabric were empty because they couldn't even get their own residents to play there. And, and also, other super clubs, not 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 just that one in particular, and it was um, it was when the bubble burst because that was when you first saw Carl Cox in a private jet going from timeline to timeline, time zone to time zone. You know what I mean? I remember Un- that, unheard, yeah. unheard of things like you know, Fat Boy Slim got in a helicopter, stuff like that, and it's, <laughs> and it's that kind of sort of slightly nineties naff excess that was going on. And as I say, I was so embarrassed, I actually tried to put the money over the bar in the club I was working. I was like, I said to the to the club owner can I put this money over the bar so we can have a free bar for say midnight till 1am or something? And he just looked at me like I was deranged. And my, and my manager and agent said, we'll just, we'll, we will literally leave you as a client if you try to give the money away. So I actually took me and four mates on holiday, which is how I alleviated my guilt. In, in, it's one in, of the stories in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So I alleviated my guilt and um, it was a, yeah, it was, it was, it was a strange time, but what happened was in terms of the economics was, all the promoters went, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Absolutely no way I'm paying a DJ quarter of a million quid or whatever Chesto was getting for some arena in Sheffield. You know, these are the first time these things were happening. It didn't just shoot up a bit. Everything went up by a degree of about 10. So we were seeing DJs in private jets, fees that were obscene. I mean, obscene is the word for it, you know, and, the entire industry just not just not even by consensus. They each individually just went, no way. That's not, no, we're not doing that again. No, sir. And uh, almost overnight, a whole new generation of promoters who'd never DJed before suddenly became DJs. Yeah. You know, I literally saw with my own eyes, I would, I would arrive at a club that I'd played at. And that guy who was always in the corner licking his own eyebrows was actually behind the decks. and doing a really, really shit job. I should say. But then again, also a lot of, underpaid residents got elevated and things. But what happened was with all economic bubbles, the mid range always gets squeezed out. 
this is as, this this is as true for say Amazon and a local bookshop as it is for DJs. It's always the middle that gets squeezed. The people at the top who always make lots of money are always unaffected, and the people who are at the bottom who are working for a pittance are unaffected. But it's always the middle gets squeezed out. And to be fair, there's an argument that a lot of those mid-range DJs were overpaid. They couldn't yeah. fill a 1,000 capacity venue on their own, but they were getting you know a couple of grand to play records for two hours. So if you like, you could argue if you were a great big stinking Tory that um, that this sort of thing was just economics. And it always happens that the mid-range is always the, the fat that gets trimmed the first. Yeah. I certainly did. I, I was a mid-range DJ and I saw it all. I saw nothing happening to the top except them getting even more money. I saw lots of sort of local residents and young DJs suddenly getting lots of gigs for very, very, very low money. Um, my gigs and those of my contemporaries drying up. And, and it was, it was a kind of, um, you know, economic lesson. So yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Millennium was a big, big, big bubble that burst. I'm going to have to ask one more thing. Cause like, um, I've got to go look after my children. Um, who are making ominous noises in the background. But I just want to, <laughs> so a very last uh, question. Um, it, it's, what's the, like the one thing you think that people most misunderstand about the whole dance music world? What's the biggest misconception? Hmm. That's a good question. Usually I've got an instant answer to things, but that's uh, actually having to think about that. I think the biggest misconception is probably the kick drum. Yeah. I think a lot of people who do not get or do not understand dance music, that's all they hear. And it's the thing we do not hear at all. We, you just feel it. You know, houses are feeling. So I think from the exterior, it's just dunk, 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 you know. And, and I've got relatives, you know, young people that I know who are like very much on the outside for dance music because that's all it is, dunk, 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 dunk. And I can see the stupidity of it. And that's also, you know, the same sort of, dads in the 1960s who thought the Beatles were terrible because they had long hair. The, the repetitive nature of it, which is why that word was used in the in the British legislation to actually outlaw a specific type of music. It's never happened ever in history and never will again, where an actual government said, identified as piece of music, and they literally said a series of repetitive beats. Yeah. That's why dance music was illegal and, say, <laughs> somehow... A folk, uh, you know, a folk group isn't, but they're using repetitive beats as well. It's just on a tambourine. Yeah. You know, but this, this idea that dance music is somehow illegal, but say a load of daft lads prancing around a maypole with ribbons on is, is folk music. There's no difference. Dance music is just the blues. It's just folk music for a, a, a newer generation. And, you, and you, you have this thing where I think that the actual kick drum, especially on badly made records, and especially things like EDM, which are, to be fair, horrible, you do get this thing where it's like it excludes almost everybody who's not willing to ignore the kick drum. So it's funny you should, yeah, I've probably got a better, cleverer explanation for it all, but that was the one that immediately sprang to mind, that when I was – trying to get people interested in dance music who weren't yeah, like younger people that I knew when I was younger, my own family, say my mom or something like that. The thing that always excluded them was don't, 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 don't. And, and ironically, now that I'm older, as soon as I hear that, I get so depressed 
Because <laughs> I used to be the, the, the noisy neighbour and now I am the old man in the castle who can't bear <laughs> any noise. So as soon as I hear that, duh, 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 I just, my, my, my heart sinks. I'm like, oh God, here we go again. So, so, and we are, we are, if you like, the, the victims and the children of the bass drum. Or the yeah. drum, as Americans call it, yeah. Well, that, that sounds like a, a good place to end things. The victims and the children of the bass drum. But look, yeah. look, it's been absolutely lovely speaking to you this afternoon. I hope you, I hope you, you know, you continue to recuperate. And um, yeah, it's as I say, it's it, it, it's a birthday present compared to COVID. Be careful out there, kids, because you don't, governments don't care about you dying of COVID, but I do. Yeah. Don't get it. Don't get it. Don't die. <laughs> <laughs>